Put this on the I love the Don slogan or whatever. Uh, QAnoners deserve healthcare and uh, <laughs> basic standard of living guarantees. Yo, what's today, man? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I know, right? No. <laughs> Look at it. You're two in sync. We want to talk at the same time. <laughs> Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And right before we recorded the intro, Troy was saying that we're in sync today, so let's hope that that means that this is just going to be a fire episode, right, man? Yeah, it's like that Always Sunny episode where they're like, we're just like finishing each other's like, uh... Sentence haircuts. Words. Words. <laughs> dude, you forgot the word words, dude. <laughs> uh, so this week we're going to be doing what was the patron chosen episode topic, uh, the philosophy of conspiracy theories. I think it narrowly won out. Isn't that right? Yeah, I believe if I remember correctly, it was philosophy of masks and philosophy of conspiracy theories and the latter one by one vote. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So that's a poll that we run periodically over on our Patreon page. So if you are a patron, then this is us fulfilling that uh, obligation? Obligation? No. What? That makes it sound like we're compelled into it. We enjoy no, doing dude, this. you got to save the word obligation. Yeah. <laughs> obligation yeah, yeah. is not something that you take on, uh, you know, apathetically or like a, as a burden. No. It's something that you want to do because you ought to do. Yeah. You can tell that he's been studying a lot of moral philosophy lately. (laughs) (laughs) The Kant seeps into your brain. That's right. Like a worm. That's right. This is the fulfillment of our promise. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, So thank you, patrons, for getting out there and voting, for selecting the topic. It actually led to a lot of really fun little reading of a couple of articles that are going to kind of frame the debate for this discussion on the philosophy of conspiracy theories. So that'll be coming up in the main segment. Yeah, but before we do that, you know what we got to do first? What do we got to do? That shitty minute. Yeah, dude. If you don't know what that is, the shitty minute is the segment of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears during this time of our lives. So Austin, uh, Pollyannish as you tend to be, what's got you down at this moment? Well, it's something that is like a perpetual peeve of mine. Um, And part of it is going to be pedantic. And then I'm going to whip it around and I'm going to then direct it at myself for being a pedantic asshole. But it's basically, I just feel like there are certain words that the left should stop using. That there should be a moratorium on certain words. Or at least an epoche, a bracketing, a suspension, if you will, of just the easy cavalier use of certain words that are technical terms that have kind of seeped into the kind of everyday, especially online discourse. And I feel like it really saps them of their vitality and they often get wielded um, almost in, in just vague, incomprehensible ways. And they're words like structure, contradiction, alienation, You know, the famous buzzwords that derive from critiques of political economy that come from like a post-Hegel, post-Marx tradition. Now, here's the thing. 
here's the thing. I'm also eminently aware that a lot of new leftists are coming in and there's always a new crop of people that are like reading these terms, right? So you can't be like, bro, you're in your 30s, man. You've had like over 10 years of thinking about these words now. Right, you're, you're absolutely right. And maybe I'm being impatient. And this is my critique of myself. I'm aware that people get excited. They hear about alienation. They read a little bit of Marx and they're like, oh my God, life is alienating under capitalism. <laughs> ah, it's everywhere, you know? Um, they read a little Lukash and everything is reifying and I get it. And so... I don't want to shit on somebody's journey, their their new journey. But um, at the same time, this isn't just young, new, quote, initiates that uh, I'm directing this to. It's even, you know, kind of more stalwarts of the, the left, quote, whatever the fuck that means, paradigm, that use these words. And the reason I think that we need to have just a little bit of a suspension is we need to sort of really ponder and reclaim what these words mean. And I'm going to use the one that drives me the most, uh, the two maybe, that drive me the most mad when I, and I'm being dramatic, they don't really drive me mad, but the ones that annoy me the most. Um, contradiction and structure, and structure in, in relation to a structural analysis. And here's why I don't like them. It's a real easy dismissive term of any opposing argument to just simply say uh, they lack a structural analysis. And then my question is, well, what the fuck do you mean by a structural analysis? You don't mean structural in the early Lacanian sense, following Ferdinand de Saussure's structural linguistics, do you? No, what they mean is that you're not really looking at um, the institutional apparatuses, or you're not looking at the power relations, or you're not looking at the, quote, material conditions, which is another phrase that I feel like needs to be just thrown into the suspended dustbin of the moment. We can get back to it later. That's why it's not into the dustbin of history, just the dustbin of the moment, and then we can get back to it. But what do we mean when we're saying that that theory lacks an adequate critique of the structural conditions, right? Because a lot of times I'm actually really not satisfied with generally what people mean when they say that that theory lacks a structural analysis because they typically mean some sort of like... Um, crude materialist analysis rather than what I would want to do is even have a more robust structural analysis where we think about relations as being matter, where we think about language as being matter. I would say a more thorough and robust material analysis is needed, but we can't just simply rest and assume that when we say that they need to have a better structural analysis, uh, we can't just rest that we all understand what we mean by structural analysis, especially when I think that even what most Marxists mean is an insufficient definition itself of the notion. That's the first thing. And then the second one gets me even more bummed out is the word contradiction. Contradiction in the Hegelian Marxian legacy is not some simple positivist notion where X cannot equal non-X. That's not what contradiction means, but that's how most people think of capitalism, that somehow there is just this absolute severing or this break between, let's say, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And I was only just thinking about this on my walk back from getting my coffee just now at the, at the local coffee shop. I was thinking that this will actually tie into the main segment, and hopefully I don't forget it. Um, I just wrote myself a little note. So hopefully I'll remember, uh, I'll remember to get into it. But here's the thing. Um, I was reading a little bit of Lukash yesterday for a reading group that we're a part of here. And one of the things that Lukash talks about is how he basically accuses 
certain workers and the petty bourgeois intellectuals for not having completely broken from what he calls their awe of capitalism. And he says that he never really fell into that error. He was always disgusted with capitalist life, he said, and he, he never kind of wavered from that. So whether or not that's a sort of like self-aggrandizing position on his own, maybe enlightened position, um, is a, an argument for another time. I think there is a tension. I never liked new metal. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, it does feel a little bit convenient, doesn't it? Um, uh, especially for a thinker of like reification and class consciousness as, as he is. But the point is this, is that this is, I've been really into libidinal economy lately. And I mean, over the past couple of years, more and more. But one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is just simply how there isn't a simple, um, what we might think of as logical contradiction in the conditions of capitalism. But that I think a more robust analysis is one that looks at what is the status or what is the quality of contradiction as developed by Hegel and then as further developed by Marx that, that speaks of these tensions, right? These disjunctions, we might say, within capitalism without simply reducing them to logical contradiction. And again, the reason I'm, uh, I'm not comfortable with this is that when you can say something is a, quote, logical contradiction in the positivist sense, you make it an easy target to just simply say that, well, we know, we know the solution now. Let's just not be illogical anymore. It's kind of like the assumption, right? Like capitalism is this illogical system. The fissures are there. The cracks are there. We just need to build a, quote, rational system, right? And that to me is just a really easy escape. And I think it really lends itself to a type of faulty us versus them, like we have the pure, we've gotten out of the cave, out of Plato's cave, we've seen the light, we're no longer in the matrix, we're unplugged, we're the wise ones, we've reached Gnostic knowledge, whatever, and they're the dumb idiots. And I just think that all of that framing is inherently insufficient, and I think ultimately kind of a problematic disposition to really carry with you in the world that you're trying to change. So I think... My shitty minute is more about let's not be lazy thinkers. Let's continue to challenge ourselves. Let's continue to engage robustly in our development of these terms. And of course, if you're a new initiate, then I don't mean to shit on you. Use your terms. You know, go through the growing pains. I'm fuck. I'm still a baby in the world and in my own journey as well. Right? I've got another. Hopefully, if I don't die prematurely, I've got another 40 years of intellectual development plus 50 years maybe. So I'm sure I'll change, right? So I don't mean to shit on that early journeyers, but um, yeah, that's that's what my shitty minute is, man. Let's be better. Yeah, you're not talking about throwing it in the in the you know figurative dustbin. You mentioned right. the the dustbin of the moment, which yeah. I just think of as a drawer, but you know whatever. There yeah. aren't really dustbins you retrieve things from as a you know regularity. <laughs> I know. I just um, think that this whole this whole moment, this whole time in history, with you know. Uh, Twitter sensationalism and media sensationalism is a moment that needs to be suspended. So, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. You know, regarding the the structural, I just want to point out that technically, you're accusing people who use the term structural analysis or or use the criticism of, of something not having a deep enough structural analysis of itself, not having a deep enough structural analysis, which I agree with. Yes. So I'm not, I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was a funny little irony. <laughs> um, but I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, one of our hobby horses that I think we go on a lot is the idea that, uh, and especially for me, it's materialism. Uh, if materialism is reduced to a sort of reductive form where it's, you know, a sort of physicalistic materialism, it misses for me the most important point about 
materialism as it arose in the uh, you know like nineteenth twentieth centuries in in philosophy, and that's about relations, right? Nothing right. is free from relations, and that's the most important point about materialism, not the reduction of all things that are non-physical to physical or that's right. something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on board with that. That's I think the like the key the key thing in, in metaphysics really to be concerned with. Um, regarding the contradiction idea, I think you kind of hit it. Like it's you got to disambiguate logical contradictions from historical and social and whatever contradictions, right? Like I, I'm not a logic guy, but it seems to me like a logical contradiction has a there's a there's a normative element there, right? You've sort of yes. broken a rule when you commit a logical contradiction. And so it, it sort of recognizing the contradiction itself is like halfway, if not more, to resolving the contradiction. Yes. Right. Um, and so since that normative element's there, it's that you've done all the hard work basically at that point. And, and that's do, not do you the think case. That, do you think that, that maybe this even fits into the G.A. Cohen like critique of the obstetric Marxist political theory, right? Where it's like, the solution is already in the problem, and if you can just simply reduce it to an easy mathematical formula that, like, oh, capitalism produces all of these logical contradictions, well, then we're basically on the way to birthing socialism. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the parallel there is that logic has a normative sort of teleological element to it, right? Perfect consistency yeah. is, the, is the norm to aspire to. And the obstetric sort of metaphor there has the historical teleology. Right? There's a sort of goal that we have to meet, and these contradictions are um, steps in the way to the goal, but they're also missteps in the way to that goal. And so when we recognize them, that takes us 90% of the way towards getting back on the right step or whatever, right? back on the right path. And that's just not true. There isn't historical, a historical teleology, at least not a, an obvious or a clear one, at the very least, um, that can do that. So we don't have... It's like diagnosing a disease where you know something's wrong, but you don't know how the body actually works, mm. right? Um, that's probably a poor metaphor since we do know how the body works, but, <laughs> but <laughs> whatever I know thing out there, yeah. yeah, where you sort of, you recognize a diseased element or a misstep without knowing the corrective measures to be taken against it. And so that's, that's just as much work as the diagnostic part. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think it, I think, you know, it was something that actually Todd McGowan said a long time ago uh, on his podcast, Why Theory, which if you guys haven't started listening to that, um, especially if you're theory nerds, I, I can't recommend it enough it's it's one of my faves i haven't listened to it lately just because i've i've been on my own little podcast break but they've got a great kind of uh, backlog of episodes and things like that that you can check into as well um but one of the things that that he talks about a lot is or he talked about previously a lot was kind of just this easy way of setting up the us versus them where like you're in the status of the pure and they're in the status of the corrupt and again I, i've said this multiple times on the pod the podcast but you know, it just reeks so much of like a type of religious dogmatism, a type of conversion into the light, right? We have, but but it's but it's in the form of rationality, and um, and I even think that we we will probably counter this in the main segment again because it came up in the second article. What was the guy's name? Uh, the Hollis Hall Phelps one. Hollis Phelps, yeah. Um, came up in that article. We're talking about you know how like. How do you engage with somebody who's a conspiracy conspiracy theorist? Can you just simply be like, "Oh, that that's that's wrong information. That's irrational." We, the the enlightened, the progressive, the non conspiracy theorists, we have the rational. Is that a way to even frame this discussion itself? 
right? And I think a lot of people just simply think that that's the case, that rationality is somehow uh, like a direct vector relating to the real. And as long as we can determine our capacity to wield control or at least wield access to uh, rationality, then we have a beat on the real. And I just am, maybe it's just too much of that continental philosophy influence. I just am not as convinced, one, that that's possible, but two, I just don't think that that's a very successful social strategy. I I think it ends up ultimately kind of creating more divisions and anger and um, deepening silos than it does actually create a type of productive, artistic, and creative um, foray out of the the muck in the mess, you know? Yeah, I have some thoughts about that, but I think I'll save it for the main segment when we get into (laughs) it organically. Well, perfect. Fucking segue, man. All right, so for this week, as we said at the beginning of the episode, we are fulfilling our obligation slash promise, which is not at all a burden, um, towards the patrons who voted um, to focus on something revolving around the philosophy of conspiracy theories. And usually when we do these polls where we let the parliament decide what the, this what topic to go over for our patron-sponsored episode, we keep the topics uh, very ambiguous, something like the philosophy of conspiracy theories, which could go all different ways, right? Um, whole domains of thinking, really, right? We do that in order to, I mean, selfishly, give ourselves lots of leeway to choose how to sort of specify that, right? How to focus in on some topic that interests us and that we feel like we would be at least somewhat of an authority on in some way. Um, So for that reason, we decided it wouldn't be best to do some obvious things like talk about basic um, cognitive psychology that explains why people have a bent towards conspiracy theories. Nor would it be all that helpful to do critical thinking 101 type Daniel Kahneman thinking fast, thinking slow, system one, system two thought, and approach it from that angle. Those are all things that are interesting and I think necessary for people to familiarize themselves with. And we could talk about those things, um, but there's plenty out there for that, right? That's something that we need to do. Plenty of better people can talk about that and you can right. go to those sources directly if, if, if need be. And also I think most of our audience is probably somewhat familiar with a lot of those things. Um, at least on the surface level. So in thinking about what we would do that would sort of at least utilize our experiences and our history and also be interesting for us, uh, I came across an article by Tad DeLay called What Does the White Evangelical Want? And it's from Bias Mag- uh, the Bias Magazine, which I hadn't heard of until uh, I read this article, but um, both articles that were reading through are from that magazine. So apparently uh, they are a thing. Hmm. Um, and then secondly, an article, um, that just actually, it came out a month ago, but I just became familiar with it, uh, by Hollis Phelps called QAnon is the perfect evangelical conspiracy. Just to kind of tie in since the first article, what does the white evangelical want is more of a foundation and thinking about, um, evangelicalism in America and it's sort of, uh, where it stands, uh, intellectually in its self-understanding, um, more of a a grounding piece and then applying that to the idea of why evangelicalism has been so uh, ready to accept QAnon as kind of a a pinnacle conspiracy example of the conspiracy theory that's popular today and that a lot of people are talking about. So hopefully that logic makes sense. Um, (laughs) 
we'll try and flesh out some of it. Not probably try to do an exegetical work or anything on it, but uh, so you can go ahead and read the articles if you want yourself, and then come back and we can listen listen to us talk about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I think the because obviously even um, it's Hollis Phelps is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, he even quotes the Tad Delay article, particularly the the bit where Delay says that look. Um, evangelicalism is dying and it knows it, right? And I thought to me that was a really interesting point because I, I forgot that element of the Tad DeLay article, at least consciously, right? I'm sure it seeped in there. But yesterday when I was reading the Phelps article, um, before I had gotten to that line, I was kind of thinking along a similar thread. And so I guess I would just simply ask you that is, um, what does that mean? And why is evangelicalism dying? And what does it mean to say that they know it? You know? Yeah, right. There's there's some cryptic phrasing in a lot of quotes that I had from the Dilly article, which I kind of like um, because it's I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be a thoroughgoing historical analysis or social analysis. No, no yeah. It's, it's, it's a thing to piece. be... A, it's a provocative yeah, yeah. kind of piece, right? Yeah. So there's going to be these kind of ambiguous cryptic phrases which are open to interpretation. And I appreciate that given the tone of the of the piece. So yeah, I, I also wrote down that that quote, it's a faith that's dying and it knows it. Mm. And the way I interpreted that was, you know, there seems to be this kind of common belief about people not in the evangelical movement, people looking from the outside, that evangelicals sort of may realize that they're on the decline demographically but that they have this kind of blind faith that they're going to be back on top again soon. And the whole Trump phenomenon is evidence of the fact that they think they can actually win this thing. This thing being some sort of like ambiguous social majority or at least control over the majority through specific laws like prohibiting abortion or gay marriage or, you know, whatever. Uh, having a president who speaks their language is a kind of a win itself, right? Even if they're a minoritarian group. Um and that's somehow like hashtag winning. And I think that the delay um, quote there is kind of pouring some like cold water on that. That's the mm. phrase, right? Pouring cold water on it? I couldn't sure. remember if it was cold water well, or hot water. <laughs> Depends on the no, thing. Yeah. Are you trying to melt the thing or are you trying to cool the thing down? Yeah, you're trying to scald um, the thing or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pouring cold water as in to melt it or pouring hot water as in to... Uh, uh, Listen, man, take, to cool take a cold shower, down. dude. Take I need a cold to take shower again, dude. <laughs> uh, to try to reject that notion and to say something like, "No, there's actually an underlying, um, an underlying kind of anxiety or turmoil are the terms that he uses uh, about the fact that the cultural influence of evangelicals is clearly waning and it's not going to stop, mm. um, barring you know, complete apocalypse that somehow benefits evangelicals." Um, so there's no, there's no real reason to think that evangelicalism is going to have the place that it did in the 70s and 80s ever again, or at least anytime soon. And um, knowing that it's kind of restructured the desire of the evangelical in a certain way, that was that would be its sort of, um, its precursors are there in its history, but it's a sort of kind of new, somewhat new thing, um, the way that its uh, desire and political action is considered which I think is mm. um, an astute observation about evangelicals, even just in the last 10 years in terms of people we know from that movement to, I can see the logical progression from where they were you know, 15 years ago to now, but it's still a stark one in some respects. 
Yeah, you know what's been interesting is to see people um, in the what I would call like fringe evangelical community, like the Calvinist evangelicals, which might seem like a strange contradiction of terms, but you know, like people in my family or people that are a part of the church community that we were a part of, um, you know, like my father's far less evangelical. Well, I always thought he was far less evangelical than our old church community is, right? Um, but as in more reformed, right? More reformed, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, there's definitely a cross resonance between evangelicalism and uh, reformed theology in America, especially mm-hmm. in the 21st century, right? And um, but it's just been interesting to see the evangelicalism come out even further, come out a little bit even more, you know. Um, and a lot of it has to do with media influence. You know, Fox News is still Drudge Report. Those those are still the resources for, quote, politics for a lot of people in the Reformed community. Um, and, and even if you subscribe to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, you know, that shit seeps in, right? So it, it is an interesting contradiction uh, to use to use a, a term that we talked about earlier. And I, I think, or, or we might say like disjunction. And it'd be really curious to do like a full-length study on that particular disjunction. I mean, it'll never happen in my lifetime, but in another uh, in another lifetime, on another one of our multiverse worlds, I'm sure there's an Austin out there doing that study, um, or at least I hope so. But um, so that's been interesting. So one of the things though that I've been thinking a lot about is I was just taking notes, like on my little notepad here as you were talking, and you mentioned something about you know seeing their cultural influence waning, and I'm thinking that you know that means that they previously saw that they had an influence, which means that there was a recognition of power, there was some kind of social power. Uh, cultural power in the terms of like producing or producing cultural norms, producing the language by which we frame ourselves, um, producing certain um, uh, uh, cultural habits and tendencies. So there was a power of creation, a power of production, a potency that was maybe felt before. And there's a self-knowledge then. There's like a, a reflection that they're having that those things are waning they had the potency, the world was theirs, but now it's been taken away. And I recently did a little YouTube video on, on my little YouTube channel about something um, relating to like anti-blackness and as I, we were finishing black Marxism. And I was talking about this binary of, uh, or let's say just these two terms of um, potency and belonging or worldliness. And I was recounting an experience that I had where I was walking around Sydney in this neighborhood and all of a sudden I felt like I didn't belong, which was a very strange experience for me as uh, somebody who feels like he belongs everywhere. (laughs) Um, But I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like the neighborhood wasn't mine. I felt like, and it wasn't like some sort of like foreign environment, really. I'm in a fucking English speaking country and I'm in like this gentrified neighborhood walking around but for some reason, I was whatever the state of my mind was. I was just really tapped into the sense that this this little neighborhood, I didn't belong here. I didn't know these people on the balcony that were drinking and having a good time. I didn't know the shop owners. Um, I had no stake. I had no equity claim. I had no cultural equity in this place, really. Right? I was kind of a stranger walking through. And then at the same time, I got really reminded of a conversation a friend of mine. Uh, and I had, you know, years ago when he was talking about how poverty kind of saps his potency and belonging in the world, how he just feels kind of impotent, um, you know, when he's in his impoverished state, right? And it kind of prevents him from 
going out and even like maybe like trying to date somebody or trying to meet somebody or trying to go and involve in the daily activities of the world because those things require a certain amount of cultural capital which is related to a certain amount of wealth and your wealth position um, in the economic ladder so to speak right socioeconomic ladder and so I was thinking about how like this notion of belonging and worldliness kind of relates to potency and having the capacity to produce because you feel like you're a part of this world and I think there's a sort of feedback loop there between this belonging and potency dualism or duality and I was thinking maybe there might be something to that here as well there's a sense in which their potency their belonging the world seems like it's being taken from them. They watch things playing out. They're watching media. They're watching movies as representation is expanding to be more diverse as um, they're looking at, you know, a presidency of eight years that was the evil Dems led by a black man. You know, they start to see that their voice, the voice that has always been the singular represented voice, you know, the kind of waspy, weird, you know, Western educated, industrial, whatever it is, um, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, whatever it is, um, that those, that those uh, figures are not the only figures that are given dominance in the representational matrix. But now there is more of like a, a diversity that is taking place in a globalized world. And then here's the irony. So they're seeing this, but then the irony is is that the political system and the economic system that most of these individuals tend to support is the very economic system that has <laughs> led to a globalized world that has led to diversity. So there's some there's a bunch here in what I just said, but that's kind of what where my mind has been thinking. Yeah, I mean that the great irony of, you know, all that solid melts into air. Um, <laughs> and there's a there's a loss there that capitalism does to all norms and relations, even the unjust ones as well as the just ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, I don't, I don't remember who said this, but kind of famous phrase that it's something like to the oppressor, equality feels like or is experienced as injustice. Mm. And there's, you know, that's not to be, meant to be an, an apologia or defense for those who are uh, the oppressors. It's just meant to try to explain why do they react the way that they do? Because they react with vitriol, right? Like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings being like a, all too prime an example of yeah. the way that when someone's you know called to the consequences of their own actions, um, you know they they don't react shamefully or uh, you know humbly or whatever or you know try to understand and accept. They respond like a you know animal that's backed into a cage. Um, mm. And so yeah, it's it's again it's not meant to um, sort of justify or rationalize. This kind of thing, but to try to explain why do people react the way that they do? They experience this law, this um, change as a loss, right? A loss of cultural and social power. Ah, and so we. So if it's a loss, there's a trauma, then, isn't there? Yeah, where are you going with that? Well, because it just makes us think of the kind of depth, if you will, and when someone experiences a trauma. Um, they react in all kinds of different ways, right? There's a sort of PTSD, if you will. Um, there is, because, you know, I think it's easy to be like these these individuals who are acting in this way. Yeah, they're experiencing this as like a direct confrontation to their position, but it's purely at the level of like power, right? Like uh, it's all just about power. Their, their power is being taken from them. Power, power, power. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but there's also a sense that we need to kind of get deeper into um, the layers of subjectivity, into enjoyment, into um, 
senses of the self, into um, community cohesion, into um, you know these these layers of kind of psychological uh, turmoil, right? Both at the individual and at the kind of collective uh, collective levels. And so, if this is experienced as a type of trauma, a traumatic loss, like how can we think through the not value in a good sense, but I just mean in, in a kind of the sense of the magnitude, the quality. How can we think about the quality of this loss, right? Without being like, oh, let's feel sorry for them and, and, and give them more leash, right? How can we think about this as this is traumatic for them? And would that not maybe give us an indication then of, of ways to seek adjustment in the proper psychoanalytic sense. Because if we're going to say, and this is the Marxist critique, if we're going to say that they're responding to, um, you know, kind of the, the the heartlessness of the world, and the way that they respond is through their kind of like political and religious allegiances, and then the loss of that creates a trauma, then that means that their, their solution wasn't actually ultimately the right solution. It wasn't one that, that kind of prevented... Uh, a fallout. So maybe then we can start thinking about, okay, this is a sort of traumatic loss um, because the object that they were holding on to itself wasn't stable because it didn't adequately address the true um, issues that the world was presenting them with. And therefore, we might be able to then find better strategies for alleviating um, the problems that they were feeling, which would then mitigate the potential fallout of the traumatic losses and things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are you getting to like... Um the, the fact that this loss of cultural um, power is experienced as a loss, as, as a sort of traumatic event. And so it has these symptomatic repercussions, right? Yeah. Um, one of which might be this bent towards conspiracy theories, which we'll get to. I think it is. Mm. Um, uh, the, the proper way of thinking about it um, is to think about, well, what... What's sort of the undergirding? Oh, I'm going to use it, dude. I'm going to I'm going to say it. <laughs> What's the proper structural analysis that we can give? Yeah. Um, for why this loss of cultural power was experienced traumatically and is uh, has, has these sort of symptomatic repercussions over time mm. afterwards. Yeah. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think so. I, I I do. I think so. And this is why my shitty minute I think really folds into what we're talking about in the main segment. Because an easy structural analysis would just be like, bro, it's just the contradictions of capitalism, man. The workers against the bosses, bro. Like that's the really easy way out, right? But yeah, I think if QAnoners if, had more, if they had more money, the minimum wage right. of fifteen bucks an hour, they wouldn't believe in QAnon. Which it's is, just a disaffected working, the white working class, <laughs> yeah. man. That's it, right? Which, which, by the way, they should still have fifteen dollars yeah. minimum wage. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have that. 20 bro i live in a fucking place where it's 20 dollars an hour and like you can survive if you're an uber driver if you're a cafe worker like you're not buying property but fuck man the the inequality is not as potent here in sydney and i know people who are australian are pulling their hair out because they're leftists and like no we have our problems yes yes absolutely but it's not quite the same it's not as protracted as it is in the states so and obviously minimum wage is the answer but it they should have that as uh as a policy proposal definitely put put this on the owls at dawn slogan or whatever uh q and honors deserve health care and uh, <laughs> basic standard of living guaranteed right but that's not going to somehow alleviate all the quote contradictions of the global <laughs> capitalist order right there are more 
conjunctions and disjunctions and tensions and issues that go down to the libidinal and the psychosexual and and this is why I think to, that, that we need to really kind of think through and that's why I, I really like the Tad Delay article, right? Is is I think it, it does take a little bit more of that deep dive into the the, the psychoanalytic, um, uh, not just at the individual level, but at a kind of like societal level or a community level, like the community of evangelicals, and uh, and I think that that is a is it an, an important kind of step into the right analysis so that we can hopefully then come up with better solutions. Yeah, there's this quote in the beginning of the delay article where he says the liberal fantasy supposes that conservatives are dupes in need of education. And then he mm. turns it around and says, that's actually the, they're the dupes if they think that. Mm. And that seems to be, um, I think he was referring to the by liberals, like the kind of centrist version of this, right? Is these people just need to be educated. They just don't understand what they're doing, what they're believing is wrong and is dumb. Um, and that's a fantasy. I don't think we need to go too deep into that. It's it's clear that, as Delay says, uh, this operates at the level of desire, not at the level of information. Mm. Um, and that's sort of a rejection of the idea that we can just, if everyone takes a critical thinking class in their senior year of high school, we wouldn't have conspiracy theories, um, which yes. is, seems to be in many ways opposite of what's true. In some ways, the more you learn, um, the more you're able to definitely find evidence for any possible hypothesis you can come up with, right? So yeah. there's no guarantee either way that the sort of accumulation of knowledge guarantees you won't believe in conspiracy theories like these. Um, and then also you can sort of take that quote, the idea that the liberal fantasy is that conservatives need education um, to, with, to rid them of their uh, conspiracy woes. And say that kind of the leftist fantasy, maybe it's not as much of a fantasy because I think this is a necessary condition. It's just not sufficient. Is that conservatives are just um, people in need of resources or something like that, right? Mm. In need of the um, sort of structural foundations of, of being able to um, live a good life or something. And that's necessary, right? I think it's, it's, much, it's a much better argument than the liberal one because this is a necessary part of the solution. Um, but it's done not enough, right? It's not sufficient mm. in and of itself. This is really good. Uh, this makes me think of the two big books. Well, he's, he's written three books, but of uh, Martin Konings, who I work with here at the University of Sydney. One, The Emotional Logic of Capitalism, which we've talked about a few times, and then his recent book, Capital in Time. He also has another book called The Development of American Finance that I recommend for everybody who wants to know about what American finance is, how it developed, and uh, how it was exported around the world. Um, he did his PhD with Leo Panitch. So if people are familiar with Panitch and Gindin's work, um, then that'll kind of give you an indication of his influence in that book. But in Emotional Logic and in Capital in Time, his primary targets are uh, progressives. And I think the the subtitle of the Emotional Logic of Capitalism is like like what progressives get wrong or what progressives missed or something like that. And in it, he basically kind of engages in a sort of um, affective or, I mean, it's emotional. We might even think of like bordering on the libidinal investigation into um, the power of money. Uh, money as being a centripetal force that pulls you in, um, but also a sort of centrifugal force that like exports itself outwardly. And he kind of like likens it to an icon, you know, like a religious icon. And... Um, one of the things that he is directly attacking is this this idea that um, oh well if only people 
uh, just had more information, then they'd be able to see the fact that money is, uh, you know, uh, has certain pitfalls attached to it, that the capitalist system, um, you know, is is uh, rife with with contradictions and uh, leads towards inequality and exponential accumulation of wealth and um, things like that, right? It's only if, if only the proper information. And then in Capital in Time, he expands this this structural um, uh, argument, um, and I don't mean structural in the sense that we were talking about before, but I mean like the form of his argument, into a critique of Karl Polanyi, which has really started even in the development of American finance as well, and the influence of Polanyi in particular, who kind of has has really popularized the idea that there is a sense of real value, right, that is like attainable. And this is a sort of interpretation of Marx that certain people have uh, argued against. Moish Pastone, for example, argues against the kind of um, trans-historicity of labor as being the sort of source of value. And if only we could just like scrape away the layers of reification, then uh, true value, use value, labor would be able to kind of like flourish because it can critique the capitalist system from its pure perspective or something along those lines. And in the Polanyian sense, the way this works is that, you know, there's this uh, double movement of disembedding and embedding where, you know, the, the political structures, you know, impose uh, social protections over the economy, but the economy left to its own devices under the influence of neoclassical theory leads towards expo- uh, exploitation and um, exponential inequality and stuff like that. And they're all based on what he calls like a sort of Kantian leap, which is this um, idea that, you know, somehow there's just this this problem of finitude. We don't need to get into that. But the point being that uh, ultimately that there's some sort of truth, there's some sort of purity, that there's some sort of foundation that can be identified and all we have to do is get there and then we can kind of like release real value or true value or uh, real cultural production or something along those lines. And he kind of problematizes that entire frame by saying it's all rooted in a foundationalist type of thinking. And I think there's something there that's going into both of the kind of critiques that you were just talking about. And I think that we can move beyond that by kind of like discarding the foundationalism, that there is a a, a purity, that there is a true source of value, and that all we need to do is discover that. Whether it's uh, rationality, whether it's access to information, whether it's truth and we just need to be able to become the harbingers of truth, whatever it is that's that source of uh, the foundation that is going to supposedly get us to um, equality or get us to fucking the New Jerusalem, we need to kind of um, get away from that thinking altogether. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I want to go too far down this road, but the, this kind of has to do with the notion that, um, so what, what does delay say? Something like, uh, quoting Lacan, truth is not in desire's nature, mm. Right. And I was thinking about that, and you know, that's obviously it's it's multiply ambiguous, and it's meant to be cryptic, uh, as everything Lacan's ever had said was. Um, but there's something in there that I don't I don't think that I entirely agree with, in the sense that I do think that sort of rational desire is truth directed, in the sense that it's directed towards the good, and truth is in service of the good, or something like that. But the issue is that there's not a, a univocal or absolute good that it's directed to. Mm. Um, I'm committed to pluralism about the good, right? Which yes. means 
pluralism does not mean anything is, is, is good. It means there are some things that are good and some things that are not. And you can sort of, in principle, know what those things are. But there's not one thing that's good. And the, the many things that are good are not reducible to one thing that's good. So it's not decided beforehand what that thing is that you're directed towards. And I think that in part sort of explains why our justifications about why we do what we do are always directed towards the good, but they always kind of get suspended in air at some point Mm. because we don't have this ability to reduce it to a single thing. Um, And so that's all like really out there and and, um, abstract, but it just makes me think like, I think that the, the general gist of the thing that you're saying is consistent with with what I'm saying, um, mm-hmm. even if like at the level of axioms or something, it's there's a there's a difference there. The point is that the important point is that there's a rejection of this sort of absolute predetermined telos or endpoint that everything is directed to and by which everything is judged. Yes. Um, and so the rejection of that is the important point. It seems like the kind of things we're, that we're criticizing here, the sort of liberal fantasy and maybe the leftist fantasy or quasi-fantasy is are, they're making the mistake of, of in some way embedding that absolute telos uh, as something to aspire to as a regulative ideal. Um, and that's what we're rejecting. Yes. Yes. And this makes me then think of, okay, so then what if I were going to distill in a overly simplistic way, if I were going to distill, like what is the logic of conspiracy theories and this hit me while I was in the cafe waiting for my coffee, and the word theodicy was bouncing around in my mind, <laughs> and that's all I could think about. And then I was thinking of Robert Brandom, who I've been reading a little bit of over the past few months, and this idea of norms and reasons. And I was thinking about how that relates to theodicy and how that relates to the good like you were just talking about. And so it seems that there's a sense in which conspiracy theories um, – and I don't mean somebody who is critical of power, right? Like, let's just be clear. I know we probably could have said that at the outset. Like, I think Noam Chomsky has this famous quote where he says, when two men in suits shake hands behind closed doors, that's not a conspiracy theory, or that's not a conspiracy, that's power. I'm not talking about that shit, like fucking Operation Mockingbird or whatever the fuck else, you know, the CIA kind of manipulating uh, movie movie studios and funding certain projects to kind of create certain propagandas. I'm not talking about propaganda right we're talking about a certain uh, a certain expression a certain fantasy a certain way of orienting in the world that i think uh is probably better described as theodical if you will is that the word theodical um and what i mean by that is that it uh operates according to kind of like two two logics one um reasons right uh, the conspiracy theory gives reasons for why they're in this traumatic um, place, right? So if they're dealing with trauma, what they can cling to is uh, an easy way of accessing reasons. It's because of the globalist cabal, right? These fucking uh, adrenochrome-taking, fucking pedophile, uh, are they fucking cannibals, um, greedy... You know, it's it's they can identify what they see as pathologies, aberrations from the norm, and then of course, uh, the norm is for at least the evangelical conspiracy theorist, the norm is some sort of Judeo-Christian moral standard, right? 
So the thing is, is they can cling to QAnon, for example, as one of the kind of most potent conspiracy theories, the one that Phelps' article talks about, right? Which is more like a frame of conspiracy theory rather than just like theories individually, right? It's more mm, of like yeah. it's more of like a worldview, so to speak. And that's why I think <laughs> theodicy is such a good way to describe it. Because one, it gives reasons for why things are the way they are, and then it gives justification for believing in it. So then there's an ethic to it as well. It justifies that it is good. It it justifies our place in the world. It justifies that God is sovereign and in control of this whole thing. Donald Trump may not be perfect, but he's Cyrus, right? He's an agent of God and God's providence. So there are reasons. There's a way to explain that give rationality, which is why the, the language of rationality doesn't work because there is a rationality here. Now you might say, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there is, there is a system of coherence, Right? It's not irrational. Yeah. It's not like, you know, intellect being driven by emotions. That's not what's happening here. It's not psychosis. Like I have, I have spent time with a, a, my grandmother was paranoid schizophrenic. When, when a schizophrenic is in a state of psychosis, you want to talk about irrational. It's a sentence where words just don't connect. Right? It's not just simply, oh, I'm seeing something that isn't there. That's, that's a symptom. That's certain delusions. But like irrationality is when there's just like words that are jumbled together and they don't have any coherence. There is a coherence in QAnon, right? Um, as loose as you might think it is, there's a sense to it, right? Um, so absolutely, there are reasons, there are norms, there are justifications, and that's why I think we can really think of it as being a theodical expression, and that's why I think it fits so well within the white evangelical world because it fits within the evangelical eschatology, you know? Yeah, I like that idea of it being a theodicy. I haven't thought about that, but that really frames it in a formal sense perfectly because theodicies are always a reaction towards some historical event which casts doubt on the faith, right? Um, That's always how a theodicy begins. And so it's always reactive and reactionary in its defensive posture. And that, um, that, yeah, that's, I think, a good way of framing how this sort of loss of cultural power how conspiracy theories can be thought of as a bomb um, for mm. that loss, right? There's this there's this sentence that that Delay has near the end of the article where he says, "White evangelicalism is a faith organized around fantasies, curating the enjoyment of, not mm. the flight from, turmoil mm. and anxiety." And I thought that was perfect because curation of the enjoyment of, not flight from, is the key mm. there, right? That's the sort of the logical sort of um, endpoint of where evangelicalism has gone over the past you know 70 years but this is what's new about it is it's not flight from anxiety it's curating the enjoyment of right it's accepting sort of that historical point and now finding a way to use you know to rationally use the tools that are available to in, sort of enjoy the symptom so to speak, right? Mm. To figure out a way to live through this moment of cultural loss. And that's why it comes out so ugly because it has that um, pathological origin point. That's so great. This makes me think of, um, you know, Isaiah Berlin's distinctions between positive and negative liberty that we've talked so much about on this podcast. And a lot of liberals, a lot of centrist liberals, they tend to still think in terms of uh, negative liberty, 
I think. Even uh, even a lot of Marxists get trapped into this. I was reading Lukash, like I said yesterday, and even he kind of is, is talking about breaking from the strangleholds of bourgeois society, a clean break from, it's breaking from. Um, there's a sense in which the sort of like the French Revolution has uh, its teeth sunk in deeply to the leftist orientation. And one of the things that Sartre writes about in the 1940s when he comes to visit America was his profound shock at positive freedom in the form of patriotism in America. And as a French man and as an existentialist, he was kind of enamored with uh, the notion of freedom from, right? Freedom from something, that negative form of liberty. When he came to America, he was overwhelmed with how Americans were free for the Constitution and how there was this libidinal positivity that it was, I love that, curating enjoyment of, right? That enjoyment for this fantasy rather than just simply escaping from the corruption. There's kind of this both in there. And I think that gives us a more robust conception of, uh, one, it gives us a more robust conception of how this can be so appealing to somebody and how it can court people's investments fully, psychically, politically, emotionally, etc., etc. And then I think um, not only does it kind of give us a more robust vision, but I think it also helps us understand why this is a very particularly American phenomenon because it relates to patriotism. So it's almost a sense in which they're doing their duty. They're being good Americans by being faithful to this theodical worldview, right? So... And this all fits into supporting troops and supporting Trump and supporting your government and blah, 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 blah. Like you can justify it in all these different ways because it's already um, loaded to be related to this patriotism as this thing that you are perpetually curating your enjoyment towards. And I think that's that's kind of a, a really good way of framing it. Yeah, and really crucially, curation is a rational activity, whereas flight totally. is not. Totally. Like fleeing from something is an instinctive response, right? And that's how I think people try to think about these things. Oh, they're they're running to religion Mm. because it's an opiate, right? They need to just get away from things. Mm. Well, actually, I mean, taking opiates can be a very rational activity also, right? It's part of the misunderstanding there. Um, But also curation means you're arranging things in an appropriate way for a particular Mm. end. And it's a rational activity that you're engaging in. And that's important to understand. Mm. This is not just someone fleeing from um, the absurdities of life towards the balm of Facebook groups that tell them what they want to hear. Not that that's never there, but that's not the key element. And and this curation is practiced with every step, you might say, of their daily lives. Like you said, which uh, Facebook groups do they uh, frequent? Which news sites do they um, do they go to for information? Which church communities do they go to? Which types of people do they associate with? This is an act of curation. These are practices that are creating, that are building out, if you will, the spaces where they can perpetually then curate even further this tendency, which is why I think the second article, he said something that was so interesting, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's about like um, an acceleration right? That it's this process of mimetic reproduction that almost intensifies and it's like exponential acceleration. Um, and I think that's because this practice of curation, it, it, it operates according to what Zizek calls the superego, uh, the superego injunction, which is the more innocent you are, the guiltier you are. 
It's almost as though the more fidelity, the more piety you infuse into the framework, the more demands it then reimposes back on top of you. So the more you curate these practices, the more curation is required. The more practices, the more opportunities for curation and practice open up, and then the more that they demand your uh, investment. And then that leads to this positive curation of enjoyment towards this curation. So it's curation of the enjoyment of curation almost, right? So there's this like circular element as well, which is pathological, but not in the sense of like it's an aberration, but pathological in the sense of like just um, growth growing without any end, right? Kind of like cancer cells. Yeah, and I think that element is certainly there, right? Um, at the same time, it's not this uh, instinctual flight from absurd reality towards um, the comfortable arms of their local Facebook QAnon group, right? Mm. Um, the sort of effects of that have these sort of, there's a sort of pathological effects which reinforce um, the the cure, curation aspect, right? But it's not sort of the foundational element, I don't think. Mm. Um, okay, so I have a, like a key part of this article that I wanted to talk about and before we get too far into it, I wanted to bring it okay. up. Um, Delay talks a bit about uh, Calvinism and election and chosenness here. And this is, I think uh, I've talked to you before, what I think is the skeleton key to the whole um, white evangelicalism connection towards conspiracy theories. And for anyone who, who doesn't really understand how white evangelicals can so wholeheartedly um, devote themselves towards conspiracies as ridiculous as QAnon, I think this is really what ultimately explains the whole thing, or at least gives you a, a frame with which to explain a lot of it. So Calvinism and evangelicalism, as you mentioned earlier, Reformed theology and evangelicals don't have a neat um, reproach one, right? There's no. they're in a lot, a lot of places in the world and throughout history, they're opposed to one another. Um, in America, it's a bit weirder. There's some points where there's, you know, Reformed churches that have almost no relationship to evangelicalism and vice versa, and some that marry them together. We came from a tradition where those two things were married together um, with people leaning more or less towards either side, right? Right. That said, what they have in common is this notion of chosenness or in uh, the Calvinistic theological language, election. Which for those who maybe don't know, the idea behind the Calvinist election is this complicated theological doctrine about um, individuals not choosing salvation from themselves, like you're choosing a certain food stuff at a buffet line or at a grocery store, right? But instead, God himself predestines or elects a certain remnant of individuals who will then be able to uh, make the choice for salvation. He sort of enables them, gives them the dynamos or the power to be able to choose by um, filling them with the Holy Spirit. And then he pulls and them so, forward with that irresistible grace. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is appropriately rapey sounding. Um, yeah. yeah, so this is the idea of election. And, and many evangelicals don't theologically hold to that, right? But what they do have is the sort of remnant of that or the foundation really of that, which is chosenness, right? Uh, what's the bumper sticker that evangelicals um, have had since the 80s? They, what, you like, know there's a huge there's the, a huge dick the, in front of you if they have this in their, in their car. Is it like when uh, like in case of rapture this car will be unmanned or something? Yeah, that's just kind of cheeky though, right? But what the the real douchey one? Do you remember? 
No. I'm not perfect. Just. Saved. Or forgiven. Forgiven? Right? Okay. Yeah. You don't remember that? I, I vaguely do. I, yeah. I might watch too many movies from the Reagan era. Um, <laughs> I'm not perfect. Just forgiven. Which is really a way of saying, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm still going to fuck you up. <laughs> I'm special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the undergirding part of that is I'm special, right? And it's so funny because in Calvinistic circles especially, it's pushed heavily that the point of election is humility. You're not, you're not allowed to sort of boast about your salvation. In fact, Paul says, I cannot boast because I did not choose, right? Um, so you have to be humble in the face of that. The, the sort of reacting, appropriate reaction to election is to be humble, realizing you didn't do anything to earn this. But of course, the end result is, of course, you're going to boast about it. You were chosen, right? That's right. If, you, if you're playing basketball and you get chosen first, it doesn't matter that you didn't do it. You are fucking special, right? <laughs> it totally misses the fact that being chosen above <laughs> other people makes you special. Right? The, word, the word holy means separate, right? When, right. Um, when Yahweh says, I'm going to choose for myself a people and they will be holy and separate for my purpose, right? That makes them special. They are a special people. That's what it means to be holy. Right? So, of course, this notion of chosenness is going to lead to incredible hubris and, in a sense, supremacy. Mm. We are chosen by God, and so we are better. We are special. We're for a unique purpose. And, of course, that unique purpose is not to serve. Right? Um, it's to, uh, it's to like, lead. It's to be the rulers. It's to decide how things go. Right? We are the special ones. Mm. And so, conspiracy theories, as they're as they exist in America in the 21st century at the very least, not always, largely, I think, revolve around this exact same dynamic. Right? There's sort of a, a secret knowledge that, is, that a certain group of people has, and they didn't necessarily earn it. They just sort of found themselves in it. They use sort of theological born-again type language to refer to it. One day, it just came to me, the light appeared to me, and I, had, and I realized QAnon was overwhelmingly true. Mm. Um, or persuasive or whatever, right? They use that kind of language because it has this kind of chosenness, like special moment. It separated me and made me a unique person chosen by either God or Trump or whatever, right? Um, to be the sort of uh, vessel for this knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, and conspiracy theories always work this way, right? There's an evil group that's hiding the truth and a small remnant of people knows it and they're special and good because of it. They're the sort of the ones who hold on to this special knowledge, even in this time of oppression. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think that that uh, election and chosenness, which is not just Calvinistic, it's throughout um, all of evangelicalism. It's really just a warped, supersessionist version of sort of, you know, ancient Judaism, right? This sense yeah. of being chosen by God. Well, we're going to take that Abraham's, the promise to Abraham and use it for ourselves, right? In this most warped way possible, not to serve people, but instead to, um, to rule. And this is why I think, and this is, again, no one's going to care about this but me, but this <laughs> is the, the genius of Karl Barth, right? Because he makes the most important theological move since Paul, probably, in saying election is not what God does to humans. Election is what God does to God in mm. choosing to unseparate himself from us. So it reverses the whole point of chosenness and election. It doesn't separate 
people by making them special, small remnant of them special, so they get this sense of supremacy and hubris. But it's what God does to himself to unseparate, to bring together, mm. right? So it reverses the whole point of election. And I don't know how we how we convince QAnoners to read Bart, but I think it would <laughs> solve everything. Yeah. Uh, I, if you could see my fucking chick, chicken scratch notes right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is so good. First of all, we can't stop doing theology, brother. We have to agree to each other. At some point, <laughs> like, I know we're going down the philosophy, political economy, like critical finance, all that other shit. I know that we're doing that stuff, but we got to keep we got to keep our tabs on this theological thinking. I don't think it'll ever leave me, but there's good shit here, man. There's good shit to contribute to the world. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um oh, I guess that's where we're doing the podcast. So we are. Um Okay, here's my question. How can we think then about uh Like okay, so then do you think that there are certain certain religiously inclined people that are going to be more inclined towards QAnon and then certainly religiously inclined people that are just dispositionally not. So somebody who's more reformed, like a hardcore Orthodox Presbyterian, you know, Westminster Confession all the way, fuck evangelicalism entirely. Like it's, it's, they, they see it as inherently problematic. Would they be less inclined because of their disposition to QAnon no, I'm, this is totally speculative. Whereas somebody who is more the, like the hybrid reformed evangelical or somebody who's just like hardcore Calvary Chapel or like Southern Baptist or something like that, that they would be more inclined towards QAnon precisely because of their um, predispositions to election, providence, free will even is an issue that we didn't you didn't talk about. But, you know, obviously evangelicalism tends to come down more on the Arminian side of things and that there is a free will. So maybe there's even more of a sort of like patting themselves on the back because they've been equipped with this grace to be able to do it and then they did it themselves they pulled themselves up by their own rational bootstraps to use a kind of like mixed mixed uh mixed metaphor um so what what do you think i don't think the the arminian uh calvinist divide there says anything really because even in the arminian side you're still chosenness is still there right Mm. yeah maybe you accepted it but it's still a gift given to you and not to others in okay. a sense, even if you believe in universal atonement, right? Um, some didn't get it. And so, and even throughout history, uh, even in the world right now, a lot of people, the culture just doesn't have that available to them, right? Um, you can't just look at, say, Japan or India and compare it to America and say, like, yeah, everyone equally has the chance to accept Christianity, the American evangelical version of it from the 20th century, which is unique throughout history, right? So... Yeah, I don't think that really plays much of a role. I, I do think that someone who's who's very strongly and strictly reformed doesn't have any sort of evangelical dispensationalist kind of elements to them probably would be less likely to fall into this kind of stuff. But I think in America, there's something really unique where evangelicals and like really strictly reformed people have the same disdain for liberals, mm. right? And so you might see more evangelicals drift towards like full-on embracing Trumpism, right? And believing all the crazy shit. Hmm. Whereas you might see some reformed people being like, yeah, Trump's an asshole. Yeah, he's a terrible person. I don't respect him whatsoever. Uh, He's an idiot. But you know who's Mm -hmm. even worse are the libs, right? And they're arrogant about it, right? 
and I hate them because yes. they look down upon me. And there's this like resentment and disdain. Mm. And that, that, that disdain eventually goes towards like, so I kind of like it when Trump pisses them off. I kind of respect that, right? I kind of, I feel that energy. And then all of a sudden they go from saying Trump's an idiot, I hate him, right? he's evil, whatever, to, yeah, I kind of want to this stuff. It's a really slow kind of drip that you see. And I think you've seen this happen over the you know seven or eight years that he's been really in the sort of political um, public climate, right? Where more and more of these sort of people you would never expect get on board the Trump thing with one foot on, one foot off kind of, but you feel like they really just want to have both feet on. Mm. And when it comes to down to the actual political action, you know, the both feet are there. You know what I think is really interesting too is that this is a very particularly American phenomenon, but it's not exclusively so. Like there is a sense in which it's being exported worldwide um, in other contexts. But of course it takes on different variations. But I have friends in Scotland, for example, who are part of like the Libertarian Party in Scotland, who they will echo some of these sentiments, which always seems very odd to me because it doesn't fully fit within their cultural ethos in the same way as it does with American evangelicalism. Because American evangelicalism has formed itself almost self-consciously around like, you know, the moral issues, the the moral majority issues, right? Being opposed to abortion, being opposed to gay marriage, being opposed to what they see as cultural decline of like liberal East Coast, West Coast decadence and sexual freedom and things like that, right? Whereas, you know, in the UK, um, politics is generally less centered around those moral concerns. They obviously have theories of cultural decline. I think we can read Brexit as being, in a, in a lot of ways, as about a, a certain like desire for um, uh, global influence, but it's less... It's less explicitly moral than, I think, American evangelicalism is, and maybe it's because the religious tradition is a little different in how it understands things, right? Um... But yeah, I don't know if that kind of plays into this as well, but I do find it interesting that – and that all of it, if you look at QAnon, it's all about like pedophiles. It's all about like sexual perversion, which is I think an interesting – like we could totally get Freudian here and be like, what the fuck is going on with evangelicals' obsession with sex, right? Um, there's this there's this fucking I, – I tweeted it. It's this older woman. She's like in her 70s, maybe even a little older at some uh, anti-mask rally uh, from a few weeks ago. And she is talking about masks, and she's like, the pedophiles love them. And uh, <laughs> the pedophiles love the masks. And I guess the idea well, is it, it Wasn't it because, yeah, kids, you can't tell if the kids in, in um, being kidnapped if they have a mask on because you can't read their facial cues? Maybe. <laughs> uh, and because you, you can hide behind your mask, so it's like, it's like a disguise. So you can indulge in your like perverse sexual but it's all fucking sex man they are obsessed with fucking sex but so which is maybe interesting because brits are notoriously repressed about sex so maybe (laughs) maybe that's what's going on i don't know i don't know what the deal is i'm just bullshitting now but anyway um there's something going on here about how all of these conspiracy theories have some sort of moral element right like they're like eating children. They're taking drugs. They're um, sexually perverse. You know, it's very little that they emphasize like inequality and wealth accumulation. A little bit, 
a little bit, but it's all reduced to like these greedy bankers, you know, they're assholes. And what are those greedy bankers doing? Ah, they're the ones who are in, engaged in these larger moral issues. It's the moral issues that are like the pinnacle of the problem with a lot of uh, like the QAnon conspiracy theory in particular. And I think that's very particularly American evangelical, you know? Yeah, individual moral Yes, uh, yes, issues, yes. Right? It's always this individual's sexual yeah. proclivities. Not the ethical community. Right, the Sidlik height of uh, of like Hegel, not 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 that. It's yeah, the individual morals. That's right. Yeah, it's like, it's like Americans can only think about uh, morality and justice in terms of individual decisions that happen uh, in private <laughs> mm. on your computer between you and this one child you've abducted or whatever. Right. Yeah. Even when it's on a mass scale, it's supposed to be this huge, you know, conspiratorial. Um, sex trafficking thing. It boils down to individuals like Clinton and Hussein. <laughs> okay, so I'm reading the fucking article, and for people who wonder why he just called Hussein, uh, he's referring to Obama. I did not know that that was like his code name on the boards, right? That they just they just straight up call him Hussein. I was like, interesting, because. You know, obviously they're doing that because it, it makes it sound more Islamic, uh, his name Islamic, and obviously it is his middle name, right? Um, but uh, it also, like, ties so much into Saddam, right? And and Saddam was, like, for a lot of these people, was the face of evil for so long in the world. And this is this actually ties into Matt Taibbi's work Um and Hate Inc., which I haven't read, but I've heard him talk about it a lot, and I kind of get the gist, um, but apparently it's an okay book. But one of the things that he kind of talks about is how the media um, is kind of like actively engaged in a project of, of division where Americans are against each other. And I think that really ties into a lot of like feeding into certain conspiratorial thinking, at least at a sort of like mediatized sensationalist level. But one of the things that he says is like previously, you know, we had an enemy uh, and the media was all kind of unified. And this is obviously generalizing, but uh, the media was unified against, you know, uh, the Reds in the Cold War. Or, um, you know, then you have like a radical Islamic terrorism in the early 21st century that the media was against. But now like, you know, Obama, uh, Obama, Osama bin Laden is dead. Slip of the tongue there. Um, Bin Laden's dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. You know, like we're detached, like things are relatively good in the Western world. So we're kind of like detached from a lot of the atrocities in Syria, Yemen, except for the sensationalized pictures. But those things can be explained away through certain uh, worldviews, right? But in terms of like like who the enemy is, the enemy now is sort of like internal. It's a domestic problem, right? And so the conspiracy theories kind of feed into that that deepening of the divide domestically because maybe we don't have Saddam Hussein. We don't have the great evil out there. Now the great evil is in here, right? It's the deep state that's controlling shit. It's the pedophiles. It's the Clintons. It's the Obamas. It's those people that are here, the enemy in our own backyard. And so there's like almost a, a paranoia that's shifted away from this like external enemy that's now constantly looking over their shoulder. And I think that's kind of maybe something that fits into this as well. What do you think? Yeah, I think so for sure. You, the media seems to have to have um, this framing of a sort of black and white friend enemy thing, right? In order to to frame the news, basically, they don't just want to just tell an, a quote unquote objective set of facts. They want to tell a story, 
um, that has some kind of guiding narrative to it. And so they're going to find that frame um, in the most, I guess, inoffensive way they can for the sake of advertising, right? Mm. Um, what strikes me about that, though, is, you know, one reaction to the, the growing power of, of conspiracy theories and stuff is to sort of take back, take again this sort of take up this liberal fantasy of we just need to educate these people, which when you realize that's going to fail, you just write them off, right? Mm. So the flip side of they need education because they're ignorant is, well, it, it's not working, right? And so we got to just give up um, and write them off and just try and uh, live without them or maybe even take away their political power or censor them or whatever, right? And that strikes me as the wrong way to think about it. Not because the sort of leftist quasi-fantasy where if you just give them healthcare and a higher minimum wage, they'll stop being conspiracy theorists, right? Or stop being white supremacists or stop being racist or stop being sexist or whatever, right? I don't think that that's which again, true. which is rooted in that foundationalism that, you know, somehow there's the real right. value out there and they just need an equal claim on that foundation, right? I don't think so. I think some people maybe, right? I think there's yeah. a, a certain margin of people who get into this stuff because their life sucks. And you read some of these, I forget what the, the subreddit is, but it's a subreddit for people who've lost their husbands or wives to QAnon. And mm. you can just read stories of people saying, I had a happy marriage and everything was fine. We agreed on politics. We agreed on values. And in the last several years, they've just gone completely at the deep end. And I think I have to divorce them because they've, they're ruining my life. All they do all day is sit on their computer and talk to people on the internet and our family's destroyed. Mm. And it's just the most saddening thing ever, right? So there's some sense in which I think absolutely structural material causes um, exacerbate the situation and, and drive people towards these kinds of solutions to find community. And I'm especially afraid that the pandemic is going to end up resulting in so much of that with people being in isolation for so long mm. and trying to find community somewhere. Uh, but that said, that does not, that will not resolve the issue, right? It will not sort of like you've taken the cancer out of the body and now the symptoms are gone kind of a thing. Um, but at the very least, making a more just society where all individuals have a sense that they are social equals who are co-producing their society. It's not going to win over people who are already unreasonable, who are already off the deep end, right? Mm. But it might win their kids over. Mm. So there is a sense in which I think we got to look. This this country is diseased, man. Yeah. You're just not going to cure it overnight it's not going to happen even if bernie was president it's not like he's going to do all the structural things we need and all of a sudden we're all healthy again right yeah. that was never going to happen um it's going to take a long ass time probably generations to get over the shit that's happened that's that's sort of festered since the 80s and obviously much of it since the founding of the country um and before so it's kind of depressing that there's that long-term outlook that has to be had but it's much better than just saying we got to write off all the crazies which isn't a solution at all. It's it, it's sort of uh, resignation. And and don't you think that this whole framing that like we just need to educate them or or whatever it's still all rooted in a negative conception of liberty that that they're ensnared and we just need to pull them out of it right they need to be free from it they need to have a break from it from it from it rather than like okay then what are we offering them what can they curate enjoyment for that is different than what they're currently practicing curation for. 
right? And then what does that mean? And this is where I think there's the great failure of whatever you want to call it, the left, radical politics, emancipatory politics. I don't even like the term emancipatory politics because, again, it's still too one note. It's still flight from, flight from. Emancipation is always from, right? And I'm not saying that there's no value in the language of emancipation in itself. It's just that that can't be it. That can't be it. There has to be something that we are giving people. What can they invest into? What can they build? What can they in in uh, indulge their pieties in? What can they psychically involve themselves in, right? What can we do to give them equity stakes, you know, uh, not just in a financial sense, but in culture, in life, in society? And I think this needs to be the way that we need to frame all of our political actions in terms of like a transformation from debt relations to equity relations. This is part of the project that I'm currently working on is that debt relations stifle us under a sort of um, oppressive power that exponentially increases itself by kind of like sucking something from um, the people who are indebted to it. This is very clearly articulated in the work of somebody like Lazarado's book, uh, The Making of the Indebted Man. Um, but that it kind of creates a sort of like dependency relation, right? Um, but one that is clearly unequal. For those who have the leverage, they get enjoyment out of it and they're exponentially increasing. And those who do not have the leverage are the ones who are kind of stifled, if you will, from potency, from belonging in the world. They can't have that, right? Which makes me think then what needs to shift there is let's shift those debt relations into equity relations. Let's make the equity relations ubiquitous. Let's have equal access to that, to the stake in the world or the stake in the capacity to build worlds. And that's what I think a lot of the political projects are missing and that I think a lot of the kind of investigations into QAnon and conspiracy thinking and evangelicals and the disaffected white working class or whatever it is that we identify as those people, um, like why why is there a sort of like almost um, uh, an inability to reach across the aisle? And I think one of the reasons is because is we're not even – we're not even engaging in the same level of like desire discourse because they don't simply want to break free from something because then they have nothing to land on. Like take it all away from them and what are you going to give them? You can't just be like, oh, you get free health care. Oh, you can release the potencies um, of human flourishing. What the fuck does that mean? Like I get it and I like that flowery language, but we got to start being specific about what alternative – practices of enjoyment uh, that we can curate. And I think that is that, that is the key. I don't know what that means. It's a huge fucking project, but I think we need to start thinking more about those positive things, um, those hyperstitional images, um, the, the, the fantasies, the, uh, the, the cultivation of the kind of like romantic imagination that will impel us towards stuff, you know, and not just a world of equality, like that, that's too vague. That's not enough. We need specifics about what it is that we can offer people in this globalized, variegated world of diversity, which is a very difficult project because then what you have is a panoply of positive images that we need to cultivate. And that's fucking hard. And that's going to run into obstacles because then people are going to be like, Ah, but we don't like those positive images. So then there also needs to be a little bit of a sense of like caution with how we develop what positive images. And that again makes it hard because then you can't be bold in declaring what positive images we're curating enjoyment for. Whereas QAnon is clearly a bold image of uh, or fantasy, let's say, that is curating enjoyment towards it, right? It's a very bold patriotic 
um, theotical worldview, this huge totalizing system. And we need to kind of not be afraid to construct those positive images, I think. Yeah, I think you're right that the, the negative liberty perspective on it doesn't take account of the fact that QAnon offers something to some people, right? It offers them something they're not finding anywhere else, whether that be a sense of community or meaning or whatever, right? And to simply sort of see it as a, as a lack or uh, they lack education, they lack the cognitive you know ability to realize what they're doing is crazy, just completely obscures that whole factor, right? Yeah. And I think that on the flip side of that, equality is a positive notion. And yet in most sort of liberal societies, it's only understood, I think deflationarily, as a negative notion. Equality means you don't have power over me or something, right? Which it does mean that, right? But it's more than that. It's a positive element. And also me being a social and political equal means in a sense, we are building this thing together, mm. right? We are building whatever this political project is together as equals. And so in this society or whatever it is, and that's you know amorphous and ambiguous, but I think appropriately so because that can take many forms. And it means that whatever specific forms we're talking about um, in our you know, in our own political culture, in our time period, whatever it is, we have to sort of foster that positive sense of equality and not just trade on this sort of negative notion, which is you don't have power over me, I don't have power over you, as if we are isolated individuals um, who engage in our own projects by ourselves, which itself I think is, you know, if you have that deflationary sense of equality, it's just going to feed into this um, sort of uh, deflated notion Um of politics that I think the, the sort of liberal fantasy we're talking about has. Now, don't get mad at me, but I think we can look to Heidegger uh, as an interesting theoretical uh, help here. So he talks about... I don't hate Heidegger, man. Okay, okay. Uh, I don't like him either, but... <laughs> <laughs> he talks about the notion of mitzain and being together, right? And there's this... He really lingers in this essay, Identity and Difference, over the idea of belonging together. And uh, the liberal notion of belonging together, that deflationary sense that you just articulated, is almost like there are these like atomized individual units and equality uh, that is we're together only in the sense that like we're free from the Leviathan, so to speak. We're free from the kind of like federal state or we're free from control by this unifying totalitarian force. And it kind of allows us then to figure out how we can be equal together, but we're uh, presumed as like atomized entities, right? And he says, you know, that's basically one way that we can think about belonging together, that we kind of like are coming together from our uh, kind of like atomized individual disparate points. But a sort of deeper understanding of belonging together might be this notion of like that there's this prior sense of community, this prior sense of belonging, this prior sense of relationality, this prior sense of difference. Um, in a kind of like, I think Deleuze expands on this. Someone like Jean-Luc Nancy expands on this. Um, but that that's kind of what we can think about as a sort of positive sense, belonging together. What do we mean by that? Does that mean just that we sort of come together from our various different vantage points? Or is it something even deeper than that? Something maybe a little bit hard to articulate right now, but that there's a sense in which we're always already in a, a relational order with one another. And that belonging together is... Um, is less about 
togetherness in, in a sense of gathering disparate entities, but rather it's more about the priority of belongingness, right? And in our state of withness, we're sort of always in that relationality. And if we can maybe start thinking from that, that that might somehow reorient how it is that we um, engage in community building. So, yeah. Yeah, you can have your mid sign at the Nazi rally. Um, <laughs> no, but to me, the, the important part of that is the fact that our individual, whatever individual atomized conceptions of what we think the good life is and what we want to do in our lives, whatever those are, they are embedded within a framework um, of a community or and or a tradition and a social process and whatever, right? And so, and those things shape our desires, right? I build a lot of my identity around my love of basketball and music, mm. right? If I wasn't born in the 20th century, that wouldn't be possible. Like I, I wouldn't even be who I am. Mm. I'd have to like be born rich to ever hear music live, <laughs> right? Yeah. Except on accident. And obviously there wouldn't be basketball at all. It wouldn't exist. I would be a completely different person uh, in a different society at a different time, right? So there's a, there's a dynamic, um, you know, mutually... Uh, mutually causing and reinforcing process there between individuals and the society they live in, right? Mm. And so we kind of have to understand both the individual aspects in light of that dynamic process and the, sh- the social aspects as being affected by the individuals within it, right? Mm. And so, yeah, I think this, the togetherness, the positive notions of equality, and then the negative notions as well, as much as they are important for um, justifying respect for individuals and not sort of sacrificing individuals for greater goods and falling into some like, you know, kind of utilitarian logic um, mm. are really important. And so it's, it's a, it's a dynamic dialectical process. Um, so it makes it hard because it's not like, well, the answer is going to be different at different times, depending upon context. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's important to keep both those in mind. You just couldn't help yourself with making that Nazi joke. Could you bro? I, always, I was thinking about it the whole time. <laughs> always got a shit on my Heidegger references. I was I like, do I say belonging to the Nazis? Do I say together <laughs> with the Nazis? Do I say mid-sign the Nazi rally? I mean, I, I had to choose between all the different options available. Do you think it's possible that I can just like stop using his name but be like, there's got to be a way to use certain ideas, but then people will think I'm just using it for nefarious purposes if I don't like attribute <laughs> it to him. I don't know. Hey, at the very least, this is what Heidegger gets. He can be a brilliant philosopher, right? One of the um, canonized continental philosophers in European history, but he was a fucking Nazi, so he gets made fun of every time he gets brought up. That's just the deal. That is the, <laughs> that's the deal. It's the arrangement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, dude. Like you know, you know how Nick Anderson was, you know, done the, the guard on the magic back in the nineties. Are you gonna was, equate you know, Nazis with Nick Anderson? Hold on. <laughs> only through a very narrow analogy. <laughs> Nick Anderson missed two free throws in the last few seconds of the fourth quarter in the finals against the Rockets when he was playing with Shaq and Penny in the Magic. Oh yeah. He was a young player, and he is only ever pretty much known now, not for being a pretty good player. Uh, but for missing those two free throws, right? That's right. But he's rich, and he got to be in the NBA and be really good. So yeah, man. that's Listen. just the deal. Hey, everybody, Heidegger just missed a couple free throws, okay? <laughs> that's it, bro. Paul Pierce shit his pants yeah. during a game. Come on, back that's down. That's just the deal. He missed a couple free throws, bro. It's not like he fucking blew up the arena. 
Like, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about conspiracy theories and shit like that? What are you thinking? No, I think we covered what we needed to cover. Yeah. A lot there. A lot there. Um, It is very interesting to... Like, I've been aware of Q for QAnon for, you know, a, few, a couple of years now. And all of a sudden, like during the pandemic, it feels like it's become a major hot talking point. And I think part of it is because people are constantly drudging up stories. And I do think that the media is clearly contributing to this. And I don't just mean the media in terms of like the big media, but even like social media is contributing to this because we constantly talk about it. Like, I'm not a big fan of like, deplatforming narratives just because I, I don't really know where I come down on it. But I do feel like that by constantly talking about it, we're platforming it. Not in the sense of kind of like um, like giving them a platform to speak, but we're almost like making it a thing through digitized mimetic uh, contagion, right? And I do think that those things are contributing to it, especially during the lockdown where, like you say, people, you know, are online even more and the the dissatisfaction, disaffection is increasing, so people are looking for places, ideas, reasons, rationality, justifications, etc. Um, but it is interesting to see that it's almost at like a fever pitch at the moment of that it's like a mainstream talking thing now. You know, apparently a couple of like Congress people in the United States have, have uh, spouted QAnon conspiracies and um, it's just, it's, it's very strange that this thing that was kind of a fringe you know, it existed in the, the 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 dark recesses of like 4chan or whatever is now something that is talked about in the public forum constantly. And uh, I don't know. I just find that a fascinating, upsetting, disturbing, confusing cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and I think uh, you're right that there's a certain way that talk about this stuff can be platforming in an appropriate way. And that's usually, I think, in the, in the notion of like, there's this weird phenomenon happening at the local zoo. Right? Mm. The chimps have gone crazy. What do we do <laughs> about this? What caused it? Right? Who's in control of it? Right. What are they feeding these chimps? And that's, a, I think, it's both a um, sort of dispiriting and insensitive and you know not that these people necessarily deserve like all the sympathy in the world right which is like a dehumanizing way of thinking about this thing yeah whereas hopefully what we're doing here if we're succeeding is to talk about it in a in a humanizing way to try to understand why things are the way that they are um that hopefully isn't this negative kind of platforming right that's just like oh the, i listened to this podcast the how's that done they were talking about QAnon. i gotta check this out it might be legit um <laughs> Which the way the media does, uh, because of it, the various ways they need, they feel they need to frame things, I think can come across that way and is usually uh, has more negative effects than positive. Hopefully we're not doing that though, but you can tell us. Totally. Yeah, because because everything is sensationalized and because everything is a spectacle, QAnon just becomes this crazy thing and people are like, ooh, cra crazy, interesting. And then it like... <laughs> I like crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm into that. And then... Yeah, and then they're into it a few months later. So, all right. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the uh, main segment there. Yeah, dude? Yeah. Let's transition to the sticky leaves, dude. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, so the final segment of the episode is the sticky leaves segment. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving them meaning. You know, what is stimulating or curating your enjoyment towards it and uh, it's Troy's turn so what's got you all in a 
happy frenzy. Oh, I've been curating the shit out of my enjoyment lately, dude. <laughs> Good. So I've talked before, and you're aware of a musician named Phil Elverum, right? Although, AKA the microphones, AKA Mount Erie. Yes. Yeah. So back in like 2015 or 16, um, he came out with a record called The Crow Looked at Me, which was about the uh, death of his wife, Genevieve, and um, their daughter, who I think was like one at the time, one or two. Um, having to sort of care for her through that and the sort of meaninglessness and uh, that experience and the record. Um, he had, Phil, Phil Everham had been making music for almost 20 years. Um, so he was, you know, a veteran of the sort of indie folk scene specifically and had been, had made a few of the most celebrated albums in independent music in America during that period. He's very well known. But that, and he'd always been known for sort of really abstract, esoteric, you know, not not difficult music, but certainly not the most accessible music out there, and certainly not direct in any way, flowery, poetic, metaphorical. And that that album, A Crow Looked at Me, was very direct. Mm. I mean, I think it was the first line it starts out with, like, death is real, yeah. right? I just basically saying, and it sucks, don't try and pretend it's like meaningful. Mm. And it's, it's direct and it's down your throat. And, and given his history, it, it comes off as just a complete shock to the system. And I talked about that record way back in the day on this podcast, if you can believe that, that long ago. Damn. Um, yeah, as being a, a really incredibly affecting record, which I almost never go back to because it's so difficult. Um, but he's he made another couple of records in between that time. Um, in some ways dealt with that experience in in more abstract terms and kind of moving back into his normal register. And then this year, about a month or so ago, he released a record under his previous pseudonym, The Microphones, which is the um, Mount Erie pre-2003-ish. He just changed the name to Mount Erie for the sake of doing something new mm. around that time. And so the microphones, he took the name back and he put out a a single song record that's 44 minutes long called The Microphones in 2020. Have you mm. heard about this? No. Yeah, you probably only would hear about it from me. Mm. Um, I've been waiting to tell you about it for this. <laughs> so he decided, and I think he started this before the pandemic, so it wasn't just pandemic, although it seems formally to be that way, um, to de- sort of walk through his adult life, uh, focusing mainly on like, the 17 to um, like late 20s of his life. I think he's like 41 or something now. And just walk through those experiences and try to understand who he was during that time Mm -hmm. and how he ended up as he did uh, today. And he said in interviews that kind of came, this idea came to him because he's usually been so abstract. And then he got really autobiographical on those records when his wife died. But in a like, I'm just telling you how I feel at this very moment mm. with no with no abstraction or, or, or you know metaphor whatsoever. Just direct, right? This is what I feel exactly. Yeah. This is what I think right at this moment. No judgment, no thought about it, no reflection, anything. So he's kind of like, I'm going to bridge that gap a little bit and do some autobiography, but I'm going to do it somewhat direct, somewhat poetic. It's going to kind of move between those two registers that he's sort of been familiar with and 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 try and connect the way he was then to the way he is now like he went through this traumatic experience of his wife dying and uh he even got married to uh 
what's her name? Who was Heath Ledger married to? Wasn't it Michelle Williams? Yeah, Michelle Williams. Yeah. He he got married to her and they were together for like a year and then they they broke up. Yeah, didn't he write like a really happy album when they were together? Uh, I mean, he don't think he writes happy albums. <laughs> <laughs> well, compared uh, to yeah, he, uh, the previous one. Yeah, he definitely was seemingly on the upswing, right? Yeah. Uh, and then that obviously that didn't end well. So he's like looking at this that last few years and just the bewildering experience of it all and trying to see how did I go from being this 20 year old who was like this to what I am now? Can I connect them? And the album is basically the way of saying, yeah, I can. Mm. Actually, I didn't think I could. I thought I was ruined. I thought I was traumatized and broken forever. And I'm not. I'm connected. And it's got kind of like a Buddhist sort of um, element to it in the sense of like uh, impermanence is the way he tried to views it through. It's, it's a weird, complicated thing. You can go and listen to the record uh, if you want to try to delve into that. But he releases this album, I think a little over a month ago. And it's one song, 44 minutes again. And he puts together a video where he takes a bunch of, basically makes a slideshow um, with pictures from his life that he dug up when he moved, I guess, after um, he uh, broke up with Michelle Williams or something like that. And just does a slideshow of pictures with the lyrics underneath it, doing this one 44 minute song. Hmm. And it's, the album, the song is really good. It's really autumnal. It's kind of, Got that sort of uh, abstract indie folk thing he was doing back in the day um, with this sort of stream of consciousness lyrics and vocals that he's done more recently. Um, and so it's really nice if you want to just listen to it and like walk uh, on, a, on a particularly chilly night, maybe when you have to mm-hmm. wear a jacket and a beanie or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's not necessarily the time of year for for you to do that but no it's coming into uh, summer here god damn it yeah <laughs> but that's what i think the most appropriate way but even more than that i would say anybody who's out there who's interested or you know uh finds any of this stuff uh as fascinating as i do just watch the video um it's really i think lends a sort of abstract poetic experience to the whole thing and the pictures are some of them are really directly about the things he's talking about in the lyrics some of them are really abstract and so you can kind of try to associate them in a fun way mm. um but the song is is really great. There's a couple of moments where there's one part where he talks about seeing Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in the theaters. And he sort of really poetically describes how the people move in the movie. And, you know, it's a classic, like they're dancing on the air and they're dancing between the trees and stuff when they're fighting. Hmm. Um, it's this really beautiful choreographed uh, film, right? And he talks about how seeing them dance like that and the poetry of their movements changed his entire idea of like, how to do music, which I think is kind of interesting to think about yeah. and then he talks later about going to a stereo lab show stereo lab the the like french canadian um indie electro act a really great uh independent band from the 2000s and late 90s and he talks about going to see them they played a 15 minute drone where they didn't do anything but one note huh. and that also changed his entire idea about how music was supposed to work <laughs> mm. um and then like he talks about this one point where uh he was a young kid and his family was like going to a vacation at the beach or something. And they built a fire and had a, um, had a little campfire or something. And they, it was cold. So they took the, his little baby brother and like held him up in front of the fire to warm him because he was getting really cold. And then he smelled like smoke the whole way home. Hmm. And he says, and that also explains why I am the way that I am. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. My brother smells like smoke. Therefore, I am in this weird 
you know, subversion of, Car- of Descartes. Yeah. Um, and at the end, there's this line I wrote down because I wanted to say it to you because I thought you would appreciate it. He goes through all these experiences, really abstract, kind of poetic, metaphorical, about how he became the person that he is. And then at the end, he says, I find that I am newborn every time. Hmm. And it seems like a kind of like a thesis statement of the of the little record here and that all these experiences he has an experience it's implanted in his memory and it and it makes him newborn like makes him new again and yet he still knows that it's him that experienced mm. it so it's this weird dialectical interplay of becoming newborn every time these experiences happen but then also knowing it's me that became newborn mm. at the same time I can connect or you know, put a through line um, through those things. And that always reminds me of like the way that you talk about your like tendency to over identify with every experience you have, but not over identify like in a negative sense, but in a sense of like, you really like get into the meaning and the importance and significance of whatever new experience you have. And you like mm. kind of obsess over it for a little while and then move on to the next thing. Right. Mm. And that can be a bad thing for some people, but I think, the way that it works for you is really good. It's opposite of the way I work with things. So it's just never going to work for me. But the, the polyamorous nature of, of finding meaning in all these different things and moving between them doesn't have to mean that they lack significance mm. just because they're transient, right? They can change you and shape you and make you someone new. And then you move on to the next thing as this new person. And that's a significant change. Yeah, so that just, I'm that kind of like self reminded me of yeah. It's it's like a romantic occasionalism, you know. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I literally just came up with that and I wrote it down. Don't fucking steal it, anybody. That's my shit. <laughs> 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 yeah, dude, that sounds fucking amazing. I um, I re- what's what's the name of the crow album? A crow looked at me. Yeah, I, I, after you recommended it, I checked it out. I think I even tweeted about it. I chatted about it with Brett from Rev Left Radio, and he even expressed like a similar, uh, similar sort of emotional response to it that it was just fucking gut wrenching. Um, the thing that struck me so much about that record was how non poetic it was, how it's like. Mm-hmm the backpack that you ordered came to the door and I fell on my knees and I cried or whatever, right? Like that's something he talks about in the first song. And, oh, yeah. and God, our daughter <laughs> and our daughter was there looking at me. It's like like there's no there's no abstraction from it. There's no kind of like suspension above. It's just this is what happened. This is what I'm feeling right now. You know, this thing that you ordered before you died, the week before you died, came in the mail the day after you died or whatever the fuck it is, right? And it's like, fuck, man, it was so it was so raw and it was so almost stream of consciousness. But I found mm-hmm. the album to be in a way, maybe it's because I've never felt that level of tragedy, but it almost like, it, it in a weird way, it gave me a sense of catharsis. I, I, I don't even know why, like... What would I need catharsis from? But it almost like it took me on a journey of tragedy and I was I was able to like relieve certain tensions, maybe even tensions that were unrelated to that particular trauma. But I think that's what good art can do, right? Is it can create connections at an emotional level, at an affective level that resonate even if you haven't experienced that exactly, right? 
Um, and I think that was what was so interesting about the album. So I've I've been into him. You literally were the one who introduced me to him from that from that Sticky Leaves way back then. So that's such a weird entry point to his work. <laughs> 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 but the fact that you stuck with it says something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I went and I listened to I think one of like the Mount Mount Erie records, and then I just never kind of revisited it. But um, I I'm a hundred percent. I'm gonna as you were talking about this one song over 44 minutes, I was like, oh, that would be perfect for a walk. And even though the weather is kind of perfect and I live by the beach right now, um, I will make sure that I find a windy, rainy day because the weather here is extremely <laughs> fickle. And I'll, uh, and I'll go ahead and indulge in this, this, this track. Yeah, it's a very meditative experience. I think the first seven minutes are silence with just guitar, acoustic guitar. And he, he basically takes two tracks of acoustic guitar and winds them in, in between each other. So it kind of like feels like you're doing this kind of windy motion. It's very meditative motion mm. um, that repeats over and over again. And to the point where I think he said in an interview that he wants you to forget when you started the track, mm. like forget the, the conscious moments before you started it. And then he'll tell you the story. So he's already kind of got you in this like meditative state before he's going to tell you the story. It's really a, if you can sort of get rid of all distractions and just like walk and listen to it. I think that would be the best experience. I wonder if you like if you smoked a little weed and you just laid there on your bed and you put it on loop and you listened to it like two or three times. I wonder what effect it would have. Yeah, I do wonder. Um, I don't think I've listened to that record sitting still or lying down. Sometimes I do with with really, really good records that I love. I love to just put the vinyl on or whatever. I listen to it like lying down, mm. closing my eyes because you want to pay attention. Yeah. Right. But I think this record, it's not a busy record. It's very, it's linear. There's a progression and it, you know, it goes between you know, a build up and then goes back down again and there's movements to it. Right. But I don't think it's like a pure pay attention to record. I think it's a do something while you listen to it record, but something that's very automatic, like walking or watching the, the video on YouTube that has him doing the slideshow where you're kind of paying attention to the pictures, they're more giving you a sort of emotional response mm. than they are making you think. Yeah. In the same way walking sort of, you know, makes your blood flow, but doesn't make you necessarily have to think about what you're doing. <laughs> right. So something like that, I think would be, something rote would be an appropriate uh, context for it. Cool. So while you're sitting there just masturbating, not to completion. <laughs> for 44 minutes? <laughs> yeah, not, well, that's why I said not to completion. Not to completion. You just, you know, you just play with yourself for a little bit <laughs> just to keep yourself stimulated. Yeah. <laughs> you do that and then report back. <laughs> I'm sorry, Phil Elverham. I'm sure that is very much not what you want to hear that people are doing while listening to this album. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, sweet. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, Hope you enjoyed our uh, discussion on the patron chosen topic on the philosophy of conspiracy theories. If you are patrons, then uh, we'll be doing another poll, or I I should say we'll be kind of courting uh, topic ideas in a a very short amount of time. If you're not a patron and would like to be able to get in on this madness, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. 
where we also have uh, bonus episodes and things like that that you can get access to as well. And a new bonus episode is either just released by the time this episode came out or will be released uh, very shortly in the next day or so right after. Um, So you can check that out. And of course, we've got a back catalog of bonus episodes that you can delve into as well. And yeah. Uh, oh yes, you can go to patreon.com slash dawn for that. You can reach out to us with questions, emails. You can follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Email us uh, at owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com, etc., etc. I think that's all the housekeeping shit. Anything else that we need to say before we get out of here, brother? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das the Donnie, Americanski. Americanski.